Please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13. And let's begin today's live service, if we may, in verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Sanctify unto me all the firstborn, whatsoever openeth the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and of beast, it is mine. So everything belongs to the Lord, whether human or livestock. The Lord God of the Bible owns the title deeds to the earth, found over in uh, Revelation chapter 5, and only the Lord Jesus Christ has the right to open the title deeds. And that is another wonderful uh, verse to demonstrate the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Sanctify, meaning separate, unto me all the firstborn. Whatsoever openeth the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and of beast, it is mine. So out goes theistic evolution. Almighty God takes full credit for everything that you can see, feel and touch. And unfortunately, most of Christendom have compromised. Most of Christendom, to their absolute shame, are into theistic evolution. That, of course, is a cop-out and a cheap compromise. I think it was the last four or five popes said that evolution was more than a hypothesis. Whereas the Word of God says, in the beginning, the Lord spoke the universe into creation, into being, and on the sixth day, the Lord rested and everything was good, so on and so forth. But here, the Lord is speaking to Moses, and here the Lord wants Moses to make it clear to the children of Israel, via their elders, that whatever comes out of the womb, whether beast or man, it is to be set apart, meaning to be made holy, a bit like our sanctification. Why? It is mine, present tense. So again, this is a great verse to affirm that the Lord is behind everything. Nothing happens by chance. And if you are one of those people that believes in chance, uh, then the chances are you're not a Bible-believing Christian. Look at verse 3. And Moses said unto the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out to the house of bondage. For by strength of hand the Lord brought you out from this place. There shall no leavened bread be eaten. House of bondage. So the Jews were hated back in the day uh, concerning Pharaoh. They were a thorn in his side. He wanted to eliminate all of the newborn sons because they were growing at a rapid rate. And he knew that if he didn't do something, they would outnumber the Egyptians. For today, the Jews are still hated. If you are of the alt-left or the alt-right movement, the chances are that both of those groups hate the Jews. And you say, why would that be? Well, because they come from Jesus. Or Jesus comes from them. Go back to Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 53 sometime. Read it. Isaiah 53 makes it very clear that the Messiah would be hated, despised, and he still is. We have some very uh, archaic laws in the UK. You're not allowed to insult Islam. You're not allowed to insult homosexuals, lesbians, or transgender people. But you can insult God. You can insult Jesus Christ. You can insult Christians. You can ridicule Christians. You can fire Christians for refusing to marry same-sex people. There was a story I saw a few days ago of a doctor in the UK from London. And he's been a general practitioner, a GP, as we call such, for 30 years. And he refused to diagnose a transgender person. He said it's either male or female, a bit like one and two. And the medical board said that's uh, not what we believe anymore. We think that is discriminatory. And we ask you to reconsider your refusal 
to acknowledge this transgender person, born a man, now a woman, and he refused to do so, he was fired. He was dismissed. And he may or may not take the National Health Service to court, and he may or may not win. But pressure is against him. Society is now against him. The government is against him. The media is against him. And I thought, this thought, wouldn't it have been interesting had he been a Muslim doctor or a Jewish doctor, and he was standing firm concerning one's chromosomes before conception. And he said, no, it's male or female. I'm not going to budge on this. Allah said such and such, or Jehovah said such and such. I wonder how the media would have treated such a person. And of course, you know, it would have been with kid gloves. But here, Moses said unto the people of us three, remember this day, mark out this day, a bit like Sunday. We break bread every Sunday because Christ was raised from the dead on a Sunday and the Holy Spirit came down on a Sunday. Remember this day in which he came out from Egypt. Of course, Egypt is a type of the world. Egypt, as far as the Lord is concerned, is a corruption. Out of Egypt have I called my son. All of the new Bibles, excluding the King James Bible, come from Egypt. Antioch, Alexandria to be precise, and such is a corrupt line. Whereas the word of God comes from Antioch, Syria. So there are many reasons why Egypt is marked out as a dangerous place. Joseph made it very clear that he wanted his bones to be removed from Egypt. And if you were to find just one aspects of the Lord Jesus Christ's body on the earth anywhere at any time our faith has collapsed do you realize that our faith is the only one that demands our savior to be in heaven complete body soul and spirit whereas Islam doesn't have that problem Buddhists Hindu Sikhs haven't got that problem Masons haven't got that problem but Bible believers are insistent that the word of God is true and we believe it to be so and if we were to find any aspect of the Lord, I mean any aspect of his physical body on the earth, it is all over. Moses said unto the people, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, physical departure, and for today we have been delivered spiritually from Egypt. Egypt is a type of the world, and if you are saved, once you got saved, you are saved out of the world, out of the house of bondage. For them it was physical bondage, working probably seven days a week, 12, 13, 14 hours a day, back-breaking work. For the day before we were saved, we were slaves of Satan, enemies of the Lord, and he saved us. For by strength of hand, the Lord brought you out from this place, physical deliverance. For the day we are saved in a spiritual sense. There shall no leavened bread be eaten. Again, go back to what we said last time, unleavened bread. Very quickly, leavened bread pictures corruption, unleavened bread pictures purity you can't mix the two it's like tradition and scripture if you are a catholic you are mixing the two a typical catholic will mix the two and of course you know that vatican II said that tradition in fact going back to vatican one will supersede scripture and the catholics are now the modern day pharisees the catholics are the modern day jews that's why most people are going to perish because most people are so religious a bit like nicodemus and Job, back in the Old Testament, that they don't see themselves as being wicked sinners. And they may say, well, I haven't broken the Ten Commandments. I haven't committed this or committed that. I don't go around slandering people. I don't go around gossiping. I don't go around uh, attacking people. I don't have outbursts of anger, so on and so forth. But you're still self-righteous. That was Job's problem. He was self-righteous internally and externally. And that's why the Lord broke him down. And Nicodemus was the same. And that's why I think most of the people in hell, going back to Matthew 7, 21 to 23, are going to come from not only the, the religious realm, 
But their main problem is going to be self-righteousness. I'm a good Catholic. I'm a good Protestant. I'm a good Jew. I'm a good Muslim. And of course, if they die believing in such a statement, such a belief, they're going to perish. Because the Lord Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He came for the sick, not the righteous. Verse 4. This day came he out in the month Abib. Abib, Old Testament, being April. And again, April in the UK, just for the record, is the beginning of our financial year. And here, the calendar for the Jews starts for Abib. In Abib, for the New Testament, Nisan, being March, April time. And it shall be when the Lord shall bring thee into the land of the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he sware unto thy fathers to give thee, a land flowing with milk and honey, that thou shalt keep the service in this month. The term milk and honey means plenty. Paul says how his God, our God, will supply all of our need. Almighty God wouldn't just deliver the Jews from physical Egypt, where they later on would reminisce about the good old days. He wouldn't just take them out of Egypt, which was a pretty advanced country at that time, the most uh, powerful country on the face of the earth, and just leave them wandering for 40 years in the desert. He would provide for them. And for today, if you are saved, he has provided for you. Now, of course, you'll have to walk by faith. And that's what Hebrews 11 is all about. And it's pretty tough. It's pretty tough to walk and live by faith. I mean, all of the time. And most people don't want to do it. Most people don't want to be struggling and living in different and difficult environments. I remember listening to Barry Smith. And Barry Smith was a very interesting character. He'd been raised in the Brethren Church, had been a teacher, a very uh, comfortable job. And one day he decided to leave his occupation and his vocation and he decided to travel the world. And he had a wife and three children at the time. Incidentally, I think half or part of what he did wasn't scriptural, but bear with me. And he said this, he said, during the early years, it was pretty difficult. We traveled from Australia to Britain, America, and elsewhere. We weren't particularly well established. He had money. His wife had been a princess, I believe, uh, from one of the tribes in New Zealand, the Maori tribe. And she couldn't cook. She couldn't wash. She couldn't do anything, apparently. And old Barry Smith had to show her how to cook, how to wash, how to do basic things, because she had been raised as a princess. I mean, literally, I'm not just kidding. She was a literal princess. She came from a very privileged background, and he had to teach her all of the basic stuff. But here's the thing. During those early years, wife and himself and three children traveled the world, and he said, we were sleeping out in the open. We were sleeping in the back of cars and vans and what have you. We were washing in streams. We had it pretty tough. And I thought, that's an interesting story, and I could appreciate where, where he was going with that and why he was sharing that with us. Was it scriptural? Is it scriptural? Probably not. I can't think of any family in the book of Acts that did just that. If you think of the Robinson Crusoe story or other stories from maybe Milton or uh, Dickens or other greats going back over the last couple of hundred years. Yes, you hear of certain families going out and becoming missionaries and sacrificing and suffering. But scripturally speaking, I don't think it is correct. But the point is this. His family made a sacrifice. His family went out by faith. And on one occasion, he was leaving his farm in New Zealand. And one of his daughters, five or six, said to uh, Barry, how about the animals, Dad? And he said, "Uh, never mind the animals. Jesus Christ came down from heaven to die for our sins. And you should be focused on that. Six years old, seven years old. The point is this. Smith, rightly or wrongly, lived by faith. 
He turned his back on his occupation. He went around the world with his wife and children. And like I say, did struggle. And they were singing on, uh, singing on the streets, preaching on the streets for a period of time. And of course, later on, he became very well-to-do, very well-established. But that goes some way when it comes to living by faith. I'm not saying it was right. If you were to challenge me and say, could I prove from Scripture that Barry Smith was right? I would probably say no. Uh, but the point is this, that is a picture of going out by faith. And when you go out by faith, it will be difficult. There will be challenges. And like I say, Smith was prepared to pay the price. And later on, he would lose one of his daughters, which I won't talk about this morning. But here, the Lord, verse 5, will bring them into the land of the Canaanites. Around this time, the Jews are over one million strong. Completely remarkable. And for today, the land of Canaan isn't just a geographical Israel. It would be Jordan, Turkey, and Kuwait. Most of Israel, or most of the Middle East, I should say, uh, is the land of Canaan. And due to sin and apostasy, the Jews were kicked out of Israel, 70 AD. They wandered for over 2,000 years. Yes, a small remnant remained in Israel, a bit like when Nebuchadnezzar came and took them over to Babylon. And people like... uh, Jeremiah and others were allowed to remain and were treated very favorably. But 1948, the Jews returned in numbers. So Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, and the Jebusites, not Jesuits, as I've had some people say, Jebusites, were booted out of the land of Canaan, Middle East, shall we say, because again, the universe belongs to the Lord. He has the title deeds. It's all about him. And I've used this analogy before and use it again. But just quickly finish this verse, which he swear, which he swore, which he promised unto thy fathers to give thee a land flowing with milk and honey that thou shalt keep this service in this month. So mark out Abib being Nisan, being April and every year when you come to sacrifice the animal being the Passover, be aware as to why such has taken place. So here's the analogy. If you think of the Lord as a land owner, think of the Lord as a land lord. And the Lord, as a land Lord, can do pretty much what he wants. He has the right to uh, accept tenants. He has the right to exclude tenants. An employer has the right to employ an employee or to fire an employee. He has the right to do so. And the Lord has the right to pick himself a people, being the Jews, or for today, being the church. And he has the right, the prerogative, to bless the Jews, Old Testament, church new testament and if you want to get on the right side of the lord you better believe on his son it's been said so many times over the years you want to connect with the lord if you want to have a relationship with the lord you need to recognize his son his firstborn that's pictured back in the old testament when absalom is uh, killed by david's chief of staff and david says absalom absalom oh my son absalom and he's weeping and wailing almost hysterical And it was, I think, Joab, or one of David's chief of staff, who said, listen, we saved you this day, and had it not been for us, you would have been overthrown, your son would have been on the throne, and you would have been a beggar, probably put to death, or at least shamed and embarrassed, so on and so forth. But that goes, I think, some way. Connecting with David, a picture of God the Father, and Absalom, a picture of God the Son. Absalom died a cursed death. Jesus Christ died a cursed death. Absalom was a bad son. Jesus Christ was a good son. 
But the point is this, if you wanted to connect with David, you would do so via Absalom. You wouldn't stand in the presence of King David and run his son down, would you? No, you wouldn't. And you won't stand in the presence of God the Father and run his son down, like the Muslims do, or the Jews. Going back to all of these groups trying to come together and recreate Babel, going back to Genesis, and the Lord said, number one, it is an abomination. Number two, you better quit it. And number three, if you continue to come together for unity without any truth, I will destroy you. Verse six, seven days thou shalt eat unleavened bread, and in the seventh day shall be a feast to the Lord. So once more, unleavened bread pitches purity, it pitches unity, it pitches godliness. If you are saved, we have unity in the Lord. John 17 says we are present tense one in Christ. And I've heard Catholics and Protestants and false religions over the years saying, let's all come together, let's be one for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are already one through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here seven days, picturing Sunday to Sunday, if you will, thou shalt eat unleavened bread around the time of April, and in the seventh day shall be a feast to the Lord. Seventh day, first day of the week, again mirroring what we do every Sunday. And here the Jews are keeping a sacrifice some 1500 years before the birth, death, resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are living by faith. They have no Bible. They aren't indwelt by the spirits of God. Some of their leaders will be anointed, but not one of their leaders, not one of their people would be born again, regenerated. Triune God living inside them. That, of course, is a New Testament doctrine. 7. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and there shall no leavened bread be seen with thee, neither shall there be leaven seen with thee in all thy quarters. That term, quarters, you are now confined to your quarters. It's a military expression. You're out of bounds. You're now uh, told to return to your quarters. And this is one of the archaic words, quote-unquote, found in the King James Bible, which doesn't take much to think about. Quarters, or you strayed out of bounds. You are now uh, confined to your quarters. But again, unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and there shall no leavened bread Leavened bread be seen with thee. Not only eaten, but it shouldn't even be seen with you. Going back to don't even let any appearance of evil uh, be spotted or identified with you. Neither shall there be leaven seen with thee in all thy quarters. So the Lord wants the Jews to be a particular and peculiar people. He wants them to speak a certain way, dress a certain way, and eat a certain way. Now for today, we know from the New Testament, we can eat pretty much what we want. We can drink pretty much what we want. We can dress pretty much as we please. We have a lot of liberty, a lot of liberty in the Lord. But go back to the Old Testament. It was a very different ball game. And I say that because you'd be amazed how many people say they aren't dispensationalists. And I've heard this from Calvinists. I've heard this from uh, Pentecostals. I've heard this from Methodists and others. And they will say to you that they are not dispensationalists. And you say, well, can you explain this first to me? And you take them elsewhere and you say to these people, so do you eat fish? Do you eat pork? Do you uh, refrain from how you cut your hair? How about your clothes? And you see them getting a bit uncomfortable. And of course, they will say, well, they eat what they want. They dress as they will. And within five seconds, they are dispensationalists. But they don't want to admit it. They have a phony, false, flawed interpretation 
of what being a dispensationalist is all about. You are told to rightly divide the word of truth. And unfortunately, most groups can't do that. Most groups are biblical literates when it comes to looking at the Old and the New Testaments. And they can't delineate between the two. And they fall flat on their face and they force the Bible to contradict itself, which it never does. And they end up teaching a faith and works package. Going back to Babel, Old Testament, Babylon, New Testament. Look at verse 8. And thou shalt show thy son in that day, saying, This is done because of that which the Lord did unto me when I came forth out of Egypt. So the Lord does what he does for purpose, and he wants the Jewish leaders to be aware as to why he is doing what he is doing. He wants the Jewish fathers to relay to their sons what he is doing. Because the father is head over the wife, the wife is head over the children, and for the New Testament, God is in Christ over the church. There is a pecking order. And unfortunately, we've lost that. A lot of people today are very weak. A lot of people today don't want to be in the driving seat. A lot of saved men don't want to be head of their families. They want their wives to rule alongside them. And they say we are a partnership. They say we work side by side. That isn't scripture. That's not scripture. If you are a man, you are head over your wife. And your wife is in submission to you. But you will struggle to find families today. I mean, saved, born again families today that would acknowledge that. They will say, well, we believe in the headship of the man and we believe in the headship of Christ over the church and we believe in God being in Christ and so forth. But you start to drill into that. You start to really examine that and you find within five seconds that's not the case. And that's partly down to feminism. In fact, go back to that doctor I told you about at the beginning of this broadcast, that Christian doctor who refused to recognize this transgender person a very uh, antagonistic person, very anti-scripture. In fact, here's a term that you don't hear much of, biblophobia. You won't hear that much, will you? You'll hear homophobia, you'll hear Islamophobia, you'll hear sexism, you'll hear phobia this, phobia that, but you won't hear anything concerning biblophobia. But here's the thing, wouldn't it be interesting had that Christian doctor, who just happened to be a white middle-class man, and of course his days are numbered, wouldn't it have been interesting had he been a feminist or had that been a feminist? Say a black feminist. A black feminist. Or how about a black feminist in a wheelchair? How about a black feminist in a wheelchair, a black disabled feminist, sitting on that, state, uh, sitting on that sofa and saying to the transgender person, I don't recognize your sexuality. You have no uh, right to pick and choose your sexuality based on basic biology and go through the chromosomes again. It would be very interesting, wouldn't it? Maybe we ought to have a social experiment to see how the press and the media would respond to such a woman. And again, I would put it to you, they would treat it with kid gloves. But because he was a white, middle-class, conservative, heterosexual, Christian male, they were able to just bulldoze him, and like I say, fire him. And now he has the option of appealing his dismissal, and maybe or maybe not he will be successful. But verse 8, And thou shalt show thy son in that day, saying, this is done because of that which the Lord did unto me when I came forth out of Egypt. Going back to the Lord speaking to Moses in an audible voice and relaying such based on oral tradition, which would later on be written down into the Old Testament. And I have to say that because one of the heresies which has never really gone away pre and post the Reformation is this continual avalanche of attacks against the scripture from the Church of Rome. And they will run to, I think it's 2 Thessalonians, where Paul speaks about the traditions. And they will argue that those traditions are extra-canonical, meaning that there were traditions running parallel 
with the scripture before the scripture was even written. And they like to use that to argue for some of their erroneous and spurious beliefs. Those traditions that Paul mentions over in Second Thessalonians came from the mouth of the Messiah, which I've already spoken about. They would write down, or they would hear him in an audible sense, relay that to one another and the early church movement before the scripture was written. And once the scripture was written, those traditions were put into the scripture. I mean, how else would you know if something was legit or not? I could say so much about that, which I won't because time is against us. But verses 1 to 8 are once again dealing with the creation of a nation, the beginning of their calendar being April, their need to mark out April as a month for worship and remembrance. A people would have to be peculiar. They would have to stand out because the Lord is a peculiar God. He is a holy God. He's a jealous God. And most people don't like the idea of that. Most people think that God is just like themselves, wicked, debased, and completely uh, flawed. Or in a sense, God is a bit like themselves, of a reprobate mind. They can do what they want, and it's all very well. It's all very good. Going back to most people that are going to perish, are going to come from the religious realm. Which is pretty clear from Matthew seven twenty-one to 23. But for me, as a Bible student, I think one of the main reasons that those people are going to be in hell in their numbers i mean talk about millions perhaps even billions of people is because they won't bow the knee they won't bend the knee they won't confess jesus christ as their lord going back to the problem of job and going back to the problem of nicodemus look at verse 9 and it shall be for a sign unto thee upon thine hand and for a memorial between thine eyes that the lord's law may be in thy mouth for with a strong hand hath the Lord brought thee out of Egypt. So verse 9, in a sense, pictures the marking and branding uh, on the hands and foreheads of the Jews. If you think of the 144,000, similar sort of thing. And yes, Orthodox Jews and religious Jews will take this verse literally. And they'll put bandages around their wrists and uh, frontlets between their eyes to remind them how the law of the Lord uh, came from him and how it must be in their mouth continually. I don't know if you have to take that literally, going back to eat my flesh, drink my blood, going back to I am the door, going back to I am the bread of life, going back to uh, Christ speaking in metaphorical terms. But I know what is going on here. And again, verse 9, And it shall be for a sign unto thee, Upon thine hand. In a sense, mark of the beast, but in, uh, but in reverse. And for a memorial between thine eyes, that the Lord's law may be in thy mouth. For with a strong hand hath the Lord brought thee out of Egypt. Matthew chapter 5 speaks about your hand. Matthew chapter 5 speaks about your eye. And Matthew chapter 5 speaks about lust, linking it to your hand. And lust, linking it to your eyes. And of course, most Bible believers, with an ounce of common sense, know what he is speaking about and don't take such a passage literally. And here, this is in reverse when it comes to being aware of the holiness of the Lord and the severity of the Lord. Verse 10, Thou shalt therefore keep this ordinance in his season from year to year. One more time, Thou shalt therefore keep this ordinance in his season from year to year. When it comes to ordinances, there are only two for the New Testament. There's no such thing as sacraments. There's no such thing as holy communion. You've got baptism, being total immersion, and breaking of bread. 
That's all there is. There's no sacraments linking to your salvation. And I've heard Christians use the term holy communion. It's not scripture. It's not scriptural. Communion, fine, breaking of bread, which for the first century was a meal. We have an abridged version of that. We don't have a full-blown meal. Uh, Every Sunday we break bread. But you don't have holy communion. That's not found in the word of God. And sacraments are also not found in the word of God. And again, his season, year to year, keep it for an ordinance because he wants the Jews to be able to witness also to non-Jews. And yet, when was the last time you saw a Jew on your travels witnessing to non-Jews about Jehovah? How about never? Most Jews are very uh, into themselves. They don't spread out. They don't integrate into the community. But like the Muslims, most Muslims stick amongst themselves. Most Muslims don't promote Islam. You may find a few, but most don't. Most are happy to just stay on their own, do their own sort of a thing. It's the Jews that got saved, first century. It was the Jews that were Christians. It was the saved Messianic Jews that preached to unbelieving Israel and also the unbelieving Gentile world. And for today, those of us which are saved, we have continued that custom because the Great Commission is an everlasting commission. But here, verse 10 says, Thou shalt keep this ordinance in his season from year to year. So they will keep it, they'll mark it, in my opinion, right up until the destruction of the temple and around 99 AD. I think it was 99 AD. You have the Council of Jaffa, a Jewish council, and the Council of Jaffa affirmed that the Old Testament uh, book, being the Tanakh, was 39 books. Of course, they they uh, put their books in a different order to us, and they will combine books like First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel. But the point is this, they had a meeting, a council, and they affirmed which books were scriptural. And on top of that, they decided to follow rabbinical Judaism. Not Old Testament Judaism, but rabbinical Judaism. And if you think of the Council of Carthage, I think it was around 425 or 450, that always gets thrown in the faces of Bible-believing Christians. And what Catholics will say is, I'll say, well, the Council of Carthage told you what... Uh, was in the New Testament. Well, hold on a minute. By the end of the second century, the New Testament was first of all in circulation, was being read, uh, was being read, and uh, preached all over the Roman Empire. And by the end of the second century, that's two hundred years before Carthage ever met, the New Testament was quoted eighty-seven thousand times by the Church Fathers. They knew what the New Testament was long before Carthage ever arrived on the scene. A bit like the Council of Jaffa, 99 AD, those Jews came together and they told jury what the Jews already knew, that the Old Testament consisted of 39 books. They knew that already. Jesus Christ would quote the Old Testament, the Apostle Paul would quote it. Numerous times, Jaffa, like Carthage, simply affirmed something that was already known. Uh, Look at verse 11. And it shall be when the Lord shall bring thee into the land of the Canaanites, as he swear unto thee and to thy fathers, and shall give it thee, that thou shalt set apart unto the Lord all that openeth the matrix, and every firstling that cometh of a beast which thou hast, the males shall be the Lord's. So you need to, first of all, be aware that the animals, like the firstborn here, uh, concerning animals and uh, people, belong to the Lord. And here... It says, when you come into the land of the Canaanites, they'll be expelled, as he swore, swear, promised unto thee and to thy fathers, and shall give it thee. 
like salvation, it's a free gift, that thou shalt set apart unto the Lord all that openeth the matrix, and every firstling, every firstborn that cometh of a beast which thou hast, the males shall be the Lord's. The males shall be the Lord's. So he is, if you will, like a farmer. Christ speaks about himself as the shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I am the good shepherd, and I lay down my life for my sheep. And that's one of the reasons why you have the usage of animals in Scripture, because the Lord is not just Lord over the uh, over mankind. He's also Lord over the animal world. Going back to the Garden of Eden. And here the animals belong to the Lord, and he wants them to be marked out as uh, belonging to him. Which also goes some way in explaining what took place earlier on in the uh, book of Exodus when the Lord spared the firstborn son due to the blood being on the doorframe. And because of such, and because the Lord spared such uh, firstborn sons, he has a right to claim them back for himself, to reclaim them. What does Paul say? You're not of your own, you are bought with a price. First Corinthians chapter 7. It's like the story I told some weeks ago, and I'll tell it again in close. There was a boy who had a boat, and he was very fond of this boat, and he spent a lot of time cleaning, building, and taking care of this boat. And every weekend he went out with his boat, put it on his local river, and he thought the world of this boat. And one day he was playing with his boats, and the boat went down the stream. He lost sight of the boat, and within a few minutes it was forever gone. And that boy was very upset about the loss of his beloved boat. And he went home, told his parents, was in a lot of pain, a lot of sadness. You know, I lost my boat, mother, I lost my boat, father, my beloved boat. I built it from scratch, I polished it. It was special, it meant something to me. And I've been playing with this boat since day one, I've lost it. And then some weeks went by, it could have been some months, it could have been some years, it could have been some decades, it could have been some millenniums went by get my point, a long period of time went by and that boy was at a lake near his home and he saw in the distance what looked like his boat and he walked over to what he thought was his boat and he saw a couple of kids playing with his boat and he said to these kids, that's my boat and the kids said to him, no, it's our boat uh, you know, you've lost it, we found it losers, weepers, finders keepers, losers sweepers sort of a thing, or losers keepers but anyway, the point is this, he refound the boat he discovered the boat and he sees the boat and he speaks to these two boys and he says, that's my boat. And they say, what about it? It's now our boat. We've spent time with this boat. We've been moulding it and moulding it so on and so forth. And he says, I'll buy it back from you. And there's a moment of silence. How much? And the boy says, I'll pay, say, a hundred pounds, say a thousand dollars, say 10,000 euros, say a hundred thousand yen, whatever the currency. I'll, I'll buy it back. I'll buy it back. And these young boys think to themselves, this is a pretty good deal, that. We've got the boat for nothing, picture of the devil. And we've had fun with this boat, picture of the devil, uh, tormenting God's creation. And this boy wants to buy the boat back, picture Jesus Christ. And all we can do is win, because we didn't make the boat. The triune God created everyone and everything. And they start to think about, think, think about it amongst themselves and discuss it amongst themselves. And the boy is pleading, okay, I'll give you a thousand dollars. I'll give you a hundred euros. I'll give you 500 pounds. 
whatever the currency, you tell me what it's going to be. And it says over Matthew 13, how Christ purchased the world with his own blood. And it speaks about the devil having the world in his hands, having power, having fear over those that were being uh, tormented in a spiritual sense. And this bargaining takes place, this young boy concerning these other two boys. And of course, you know where I'm going with this. The boy represents Jesus Christ. The boat represents us, the church. And the two boys represent the devil and the world. And this young boy says, I will give you X amount of money. And the boys say, that's a deal. And they shake hands on it. And it speaks about our spiritual birth taking place through the supernatural hands of the Lord found over in Colossians uh, chapter 1, chapter 2. Never linked to physical circumcision, Old Testament. Never linked to baptism, New Testament. Never linked to uh, the RCIA. Never linked to tithing or speaking in tongues. Always linked to one's supernatural salvation. And this boy buys the boat back, picturing Jesus Christ buying us back to God. And therefore, this buyback thing, this buyback deal, this buyback situation, one more time, pictures God sparing the firstborn sons concerning the Jews back in Exodus because there was blood put on the door frame and we are saved by the blood of the Lamb. And because he spared the firstborn, he had a right to claim them for himself. And that's how we are saved. We are saved by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have strayed from him. It says how we've all gone, ast we've all gone astray from him. We uh, got lost, as it were. That goes back to the scripture from, I think, from memory, uh, Luke 15, the uh, wandering prodigal son, and the Lord goes looking for such a person and brings them back to him. So the boy represents Jesus. The boat represents the church. And the two boys represent the devil and the world. And the boy buys the boat back twice. And Jesus Christ buys us back twice. Because we once belonged to him. We were separated from the boy. And the boy went looking for us. He found us. And he was able to buy us back twice. Jesus Christ creates everything. And due to original sin. Due to our fallen state. We stray from him. And therefore he has to buy us back to him. And he does so by his precious death on a cross. And never once is your salvation or my salvation ever linked to a priest, a pastor, a prophet, an apostle, a pope, a cardinal, a bishop. Never once our salvation has always been linked to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is found very vividly if you followed my analogy concerning the boy, the boat, and the repurchasing of his beloved boat. So we are working our way through... Exodus chapter 13 and last week the term I was trying to recall was finders keepers losers weepers concerning the boy and the boat and one more time the boy represents Christ the boat represents the church and of course the boys that had confiscated the lost boat represent the devil and the world and of course the boy would buy back the boat picturing our salvation I think also from last week I made a slight mistake concerning uh, verse 6 and 7, the term seven days, and in the seventh day shall be a feast to the Lord. The seventh day, of course, will be the Sabbath. The Lord created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. So, just for the record, seventh day is a Sabbath, whereas Sunday is the first day of the week. Look at verse 9 again. And it shall be for a sign unto thee upon thine hand, and for a memorial between thine eyes. 
that the Lord's law may be in thy mouth. For with a strong hand hath the Lord brought thee out of Egypt. Keep your hand there and go to Colossians chapter 2. Paul tells you from Romans chapter 10 that if you confess with your mouth, if you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, that Jesus is Lord, you are saved. And here, hand of the Lord denotes the Lord's power. Hand of the Lord denotes something which you can't really do yourself. And I sat down a couple of nights ago reading this. I thought this is an interesting cross-reference. And from Colossians chapter 2, look at verse 8 if you will. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. And 98% of Christendom is unable to see through and is unable to take note of such a warning. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Everything that concerns the nature of the Lord was found in the Lord Jesus Christ, very God and very man. And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. So do you know that if every church, every professing church, every professing Bible believer, anyone anywhere that confesses Christ as their saviour, if they were to comprehend what I've just read to you, especially from 11 and 12, that organised religion would be in crisis because your salvation is very clearly a reality due to the Lord's hands putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, of the flesh, circumcision of Christ, and also verse 10, you are complete, like perfect in him, because he is the head of all principality and power, and again, in whom also ye are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, spiritual, not literal, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith, through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. Go back to Exodus chapter 13. So for the Old Testament, Almighty God would use his literal power to reach out to his people to rescue his people if he hadn't have done that they would never they would never have been released they would never have been able to break out and for the new testament the new covenant our salvation is done with the lord's hand not physical circumcision but spiritual circumcision it is an operation of god going back to when abraham was put into a deep sleep going back to when adam was again put into a deep sleep and from adam came eve you see your salvation whether you like it or not has nothing to do with whatever church or denomination or fellowship you are affiliated to. I know people don't like that. I know Catholics and Protestants get uneasy when people such as myself come along and say, salvation is supernatural. Salvation is always connected, not only through Christ, but through the operation of God. Through faith, you had nothing to do with it whatsoever. It's only by the grace of God that he allows you to be saved. And of course, Calvinists come along and they say yes, but he gives you faith in order to believe. But that's not scriptural. He gives you grace as a means to salvation. It's all about the Lord. But here, 13.9, a sign upon thine hand, memorial between thine eyes, that the Lord's law may be in thy mouth. David would say how much he loved the law. The overall theme of the Psalms is one's love for the law. And yet the law is your enemy. You can't keep the law. Over 600 commandments. And from the New Testament, you were told very clearly that if you broke one of the 
commandments, you've broken all of the commandments. For with a strong hand hath the Lord brought thee out of Egypt. So a literal hand, in the sense of the Lord's all-powerful intervention to rescue his people. And again, concerning the new birth, the hands of the Lord, concerning the regeneration, concerning the atonement. Also, look at verse uh, 13 again. And every firsting of an ass thou shalt redeem with a lamb. And if thou wilt not redeem it, then thou shalt break his neck, and all the firstborn of man among thy children shalt thou redeem. 13, and I've said this over the years, but 13 is very synonymous with curses. And here 13 is connected with death, concerning Absalom's cursed death, concerning Jesus's cursed death, concerning Judas's cursed death. And from Galatians chapter 3, it says how Christ has died a cursed death for us. Going back to either the animal dies in your place, or you take the Lamb of God. Of course, the third option is you pay for your own sins. But if you pay for your own sins, you need to be aware that it's going to be pretty brutal. 14. And it shall be when thy son asketh thee in time to come, saying, What is this that thou shalt say unto him? By strength of hand the Lord brought us out from Egypt, from the house of bondage. And it came to pass when Pharaoh would hardly let us go, that the Lord slew all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all that openeth the matrix, being males. But all the firstborn of my children I redeem. So the Jewish father back in the Old Testament would get himself an animal, store it for four days, and he would eventually cut the throat of the animal. He would kill the animal. And of course you know that the Father, back in the Old Testament, is a picture of God the Father, and the animal is a picture of God the Son, and he would do so in the presence of his children, like his sons, and he would do so because he wanted them to see what it would uh, result, or what was needed to allow the people of Israel to survive. And for today, a man is called to preach, he starts to preach, and he watches out, he looks out for other men to come along, and they are normally recognized from within church circles not outside of church circles you don't find people in the new testament hiring for a pastor putting an advert in the paper for a deacon or an elder or a bishop such people are recognized from within churches within assemblies and once those men are spotted from within and recognized from within then of course they are trained to lead and teach and preach and here the jewish father representing uh, representing god the father it's going to kill the animal representing God the Son in the presence of his children. A very gruesome act. Some people say this is a very bloody book. People say, I don't like the Bible. They say a lot of blood and guts. Well, again, either you pay for your own sins, and of course you will die. Ten out of ten people die. Or, had you lived back in the time of the Bible, you would offer up an animal, and that would cover your sin. Would not take away your sin. It would cover your sin. Or, third option, receive Christ as your Savior. There's just no other way to do this. And going back to Colossians chapter 2, if people could get that, if people could be aware of the deception, the vain philosophy, commandments, traditions of men, and most churches, they want to admit it or not, are following men, are following the commandments of men. If people could get that clear in their minds that Christ and Christ alone has conquered the world, would go to hell and back for you, and I mean literally into the lower parts of the earth, would taste death for every man, would go to the cross, despising the shame, if people could get that. I would say this, that, uh, that churches would probably close overnight. Because what would you need a priest for? What would you need a pastor for? What would you need a deacon or an elder for? When it comes to your salvation, of course you don't need those people whatsoever. 
You may need them to grow. You may need them to baptize you. You may need them to marry you or bury you. But those men, whether Catholic, Protestants, Independents, are never once linked to your salvation. But redemption, 14 or 15, going back to the boy in the boat, is found time after time in the scripture. And it goes back to one of two options, either receive Christ as your saviour or not. A man was walking down the street one day and he saw this car racing towards him. And out of nowhere, this kind Samaritan pushed this man out of the way. And the car crashed into the man and he broke his leg for his uh, goodwill, for his uh, kind intervention. And some years later, that man found himself in court and he said, hey, I recognize you. You saved me from that oncoming car. You broke your leg, didn't you, from that oncoming car? And the man said, yes. He said, that day I was your saviour, but now I'm your judge. So you've got one of two options when it comes to the Lord. Either take him as your saviour or take him as your judge. 16. And it shall be for a token upon thine hand and for frontlets between thine eyes. For by strength of hand, the Lord brought us forth out of Egypt. Go to Acts chapter 26. They say life is in the blood. They speak about paying a huge price. They say he really sacrificed everything for me. They say she went to hell and back for me. That's a term that you hear a lot of people use. And they speak about sacrifice. And they speak about doing something substantial. And from Acts 26, Acts 26, cast your eye over verse 16 if you will. But rise and stand upon thy feet. Like faith without works is dead. Here's a man putting his faith into action. For I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in which I appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles, unto whom now I send thee, God is speaking to the Apostle Paul, to open their eyes, and to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins, and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith, that is in me. I'm going to send you Paul to Jew and Gentile. And on top of that, once you arrive, you're going to preach to them. And you're going to turn them. That's what repentance means, turn. And you're going to turn them from darkness to light. Because you've got two kingdoms of this world. You have the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the devil. You have two churches in this world, if you will. You have two Christs in this world. You have two spirits in this world. You have two Bibles in this world. You have a counterfeit church and you have the real church. You have a counterfeit Jesus and you have the real Jesus. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith. That's the word. Going back to Colossians chapter 2, completing him, buried with him due to the operation of God, not with physical hands but supernatural hands. Sanctified by faith that is in me. So once again, Paul, as the apostle to the Gentiles, was sent to the Gentiles. And of course, he had witnessed to Jews along the way. But his main purpose was to go to the Gentiles. And he wanted them to hear the gospel. Because faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. And going back to what I've been saying over the last 19 weeks now. 20 weeks. How the Lord provides the provision. And you have to appropriate the provision. You have to reach out and receive it. But here, power of Satan, darkness to light, there's two worlds. You're either saved or unsaved. You are either a child of the Lord 
or a child of the devil, sanctified by faith that is in me. So I love these verses. I love the Lord. I love the Bible. I love being born again. Not many things to love in this world. Go back to Exodus chapter 13. But if you're saved, you should love being saved. You should love the word of God. And you should be wanting to preach the gospel. Don't keep this to yourself. 17. And it came to pass, when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God led them not through the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, Lest peradventure the people repent when they see war and they return to Egypt. Repent, like change their mind. Genesis chapter 6 says how it repented the Lord, and that term repented the Lord. And here the word repent means to have a change of mind. And yet the Lordship salvation people come from the Calvinist side or the Arminian side. And they say turn from all of your sins. Keep turning from all of your sins. And then the Lord will save you and keep turning from your sins. Keep turning from your sins to stay saved. And those devils on both wings, Calvinist or Arminian, put Christians into a spin. In fact I heard one story, I'll get back to this in a minute, of a preacher who was or had been an evangelist for 11 years, and he was speaking at a church some years ago, and he got on to the subject of professional evangelists. And he said, here are some of the tricks of the trade, which people may not know. And he said this, he said, what a lot of people don't realize is that an evangelist is sent out from his church, and his church will pay him, obviously, and they ask one or two things from the evangelist. Number one, they want a weekly report. And number two, they need justification to continue to fund him. And therefore, what a lot of evangelists do, more in America than Britain, is they go around different towns and cities and communities, and they have outreaches in the town, and they say, meeting, 7 o'clock tonight, come along. And of course, people will go along. And what normally happens is maybe 150 people turn up, if the guy's lucky enough. And sometimes 20 or 25 people will go forward and receive Christ and he makes note that meeting 7 p.m last night 150 people turned up 25 came forward and that was say 70% men 30% women or vice versa and he sends a report back to his church and they say wonderful praise the Lord brother such and such had a meeting on Monday 25 came forward had a meeting on Wednesday 35 people came forward had a meeting on Friday 45 people came forward And they think themselves, we can continue to cover the cost to fund evangelists such and such as ministry. But what he didn't tell the church was that out of those 25 people that came forward the first night and 35 the second night and 45 the third night was like 95% of those people were were what we call retreads. They'd backslidden, lukewarm, had been indifferent for a long period of time and they were going up to receive Christ again. Or to rededicate their lives to the Lord. And of course he took full credit for their salvation quote unquote. And of course he is a liar. He is a slick salesman. Those people had been saved 10, 15, 25 years ago. Had strayed from the Lord. Had heard a message. Got under conviction. Because these Calvinist preachers and also the Arminian preachers are just as bad. Put you under conviction. And you start to say to yourself am I really saved? I'm not sure if I'm saved or not. I better go forward and receive Christ. Because I'm not really living it. And that guy takes all of the credit for those people's conversions. He is a liar. Those people had already been saved for a period of time. They were backslidden out of fellowship. That's the tricks of the trade when it comes to evangelists. Of course, 
there will be a few who do get saved at every meeting, obviously. Let's not deny that. But the vast majority of those that get saved were already saved. They were just coming forward to receive Christ again, which isn't scriptural. And of course, the evangelist wants to take full credit for that. But here, you're reading about the Jews having free will. Never forget that. And that is also attacked by a lot of Calvinists. I've seen Calvinists online saying that if you believe in free will, you are a heretic. No, my friend, you are the heretic. If you go around teaching that there isn't free will, pre or post one salvation, you are the heretic. Almighty God doesn't just flick the switch and make you alive. He gives you grace. He gives you the ability to receive more, to reject him. And here, the people of the Lord, God's elect nation, look at it again. And it came to pass, 17, when Pharaoh had let the people go, he had no choice, of course, that God led them not through the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. Why? For God said, lest peradventure, lest perhaps the people repent when they see war and they return to Egypt. And yet the Calvinists say, no, you have no free will. But here, they had free will. They could have gone back into Egypt, going back to that mixed multitude. And of course, for today, this is a picture of the church. Here's a picture of someone getting saved. And he has the ability to either walk with the Lord or not. Going back to these evangelists, not all, but a good number of them lying to their churches to continue to have the money coming in to fund their ministry. So therefore, one does have free will. And in the mind of the Lord, he was conscious that they could have gone back into Egypt. So therefore, he sent on this massive detour of somewhat 40 years. But God led the people about through the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up harnessed out of the land of Egypt. So it's worth just saying these things. Because far too many people, whether Calvinist or Arminian, Lordship Salvation or Open Theism, are many times in this trap. And they hate the idea of one having the ability to receive the Lord or to reject the Lord. In fact, I got an email a while ago from somebody who should know better. An email asked me about, uh, I think it was Corey Teen Boone from uh, Holland. Is that right, Holland? Yeah. And during World War II, she was helping out Jewish people. And I've already spoken about her. And she was a very brave woman, a Calvinist, Dutch reformed and very conservative in some areas, ecumenical, unfortunately, in others. And she made a statement, Corrie, about asking Jesus into her heart. Not a term that I particularly care for. And I got an email from a friend of the ministry asking me what are thoughts of Corrie's statement. And it was word along the lines of, isn't that decisional regeneration? And I thought straight away, that is a Calvinist soundbite. And I wrote back to this person Gently, of course. And I made the point that this person should have known better than to quote a Calvinist catchphrase. You don't decide to be regenerated. Regeneration comes from the Lord. But you do have the right to receive him or reject him. And just because Corrie made that statement about asking Jesus into her heart, this person jumped the gun and perhaps is now a Calvinist, I don't know, and was asking me to offer my thoughts on that term, decisional regeneration. It's a Calvinist catchphrase. It means nothing. But it's used, you see, to attack those of us that hold to free will. And like I say, they line up to attack us. But I won't get into that this morning. But here, the whole point of 16 and 17 and 18 is dealing with the people of Israel leaving. Like leaving in droves. And once they leave, they will never return. And of course, you've got the people of Israel, children of Israel, being harnessed out of the land of Egypt. That word harnessed. Is normally used if you think of bungee jumps, if you think of those that go on a adventure playground, they say, are you harnessed? Are you wearing your harness? Are you secure? Or 
people who jump out of planes, they have to be harnessed a particular way. If you look at the uh, Amplified Bible, it says that they went up, they went out marshaled, marshaled, like protected. You see, you've got around 2 million people leaving Egypt, and that's quite a crowd. And out of those 2 million people, you've got a mixed multitude picturing the wheat and the tares, the shaft and the wheat, the sheep and the goats, and down the line, they will cause Moses and co a lot of problems. Most of Paul's enemies, you find over in 2 Corinthians, came from those inside of the church. Not just outside, but inside of the church. And over in Galatians chapter 5, I think it is from memory, he says he wanted those people to be cut off, which means executed. Could you imagine the Pope getting up and saying that? Could you imagine an Archbishop of Canterbury or Nicky Gumbel getting up and saying that? Or John MacArthur saying that? Or Joel Olstein saying that? Of course you can't. But Paul would say that. Look at verse 19. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For he had straightly sworn the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and ye shall carry up my bones away hence with you. Don't leave my bones in Egypt. Egypt is a type of the world. Don't cremate me, bury me. Joseph is a type of Jesus. And if you were to find just a fingernail, an eyelash from the Lord Jesus Christ anywhere on the face of the earth, our faith is over, completely collapsed. Because our Saviour, according to the scripture, is in heaven, is seated right now at the right hand of the Father. And yet for every other faith, any other faith, any other ideology, Karl Marx, Engels, Charles Darwin, Muhammad, Buddha, Albert Pike, Margaret Thatcher, Tony Benn, Woodrow Wilson. It makes no difference where those people are buried. But from our perspective, it is critical, it is absolutely essential that... Our Saviour is in heaven, and therefore Joseph instructed his children and vicariously Moses and co. to take up his bones from Egypt to eventually bury in the promised land. And they took their journey from Succoth and encamped in Etham, in the edge of the wilderness. And as they would arrive in Etham and Succoth, they are going to pick up people along the way that were working on the mines slave labor going back to house of bondage like i said last sunday the alt-right and the alt-left hate jews and the jews remain the most hated people on the face of the earth today but i'll tell you one other thing there is another group that are hated even more bible believers bible believing christians are hated i read stories every day in the papers of christians that are being fired for offering counseling to their patients Offering Bibles to their colleagues, offering this, offering that. I mean, fired. I mean, run out of town. And yet, this past week, the former foreign secretary made a comment about Islamic wear, like the burqa, which I'm told isn't even in the Quran. And they are wearing the burqa, they are covering up. And the former foreign secretary said that they look like mailboxes or bank robbers. And a lot of people thought that was very funny. He is being threatened with expulsion from the Conservative Party. That man is lined up to be the next Prime Minister. And diversity training. And yet, when people mock Christianity, when people mock the Bible, when people blaspheme Jesus, no one says anything. You won't find people saying that Ian McKellen should go on a diversity training course. That notorious homosexual actor who rips up the Bible on stage. 
and throws the pages onto the floor, onto the ground. Could you imagine doing that to the Quran? There'd be riots. We've lost our minds, you see. But this is what happens when people turn from the Lord. There's no faith in this country. We are led by godless governments, a godless royal family. Yes, we pray for such people. But this is the absurdity. So the Jews are the most hated people. And then afterwards, it is Bible-believing Christians. Some years ago, a Jewish woman got saved. And she went to visit her Jewish parents. And she said, I've got wonderful news for you, mother and father. I have discovered the Messiah. And there's absolute silence in the room. And the father looked very pensive. And the mother was sitting very uh, fidgetively. And she said, yes, I have found the Messiah. It is Jesus. And the father got very angry. And the mother started to cry. And the parents said to their beloved daughter, their only child, we can't believe what we are hearing. We are Jews. We are the chosen race. And you're coming into our home telling us that Jesus is the Messiah. But Jesus is a Gentile. He's a Catholic, isn't he? And of course, they made quite a commotion about their daughter's conversion. And she said, no, Jesus was a Jew, not a Gentile, because we as real Christians have had to put up with Catholicism as a counterfeit church, going back to two churches, two Bibles, two Christs, two spirits, two kingdoms. And this woman, this daughter of her parents, was trying to witness to her parents about the Messiah. And the father said, I can't accept this. And he got very angry. And the mother started to cry. And he said, look, you made your mother cry. We can't receive Jesus Christ as our saviour. He's a Gentile. Look at what his people have done to us over the centuries. And he went all through France. He went through Italy, Spain, Britain. And of course, he was right. The Church of Rome had persecuted the Jews uh, for many, many years. Like Muslims are persecuting Christians around the world in Middle Eastern countries. And he said, no, we can't accept this. And the mother got more hysterical and the father got more angry. And they said to their daughter, you better leave. You're causing your mother a lot of distress. And as she turned around, the mother said, we have no daughter. We have no daughter. 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud to lead them the way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light to go by day and night. He took not away the pillar of the cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So, again, this is supernatural. It would have been impossible for the Jews to have escaped the clutch of Pharaoh, going back to being a type of the devil, going back to being Herod, back in the Old Testament, if you will, and the Jews wouldn't have been able to break free had it not been for the Lord. We can't go to heaven if it's not for the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection. And here the Lord is going to go ahead of them, and daytime, a cloud will be in the sky, and by nighttime, fire, a pillar of fire. And of course, at the second advent, he comes back to burn up the earth. He comes back, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, in fact, chapter 1 and chapter 2. And it says, those that won't receive him, he burns up. And also from Psalm 110, the Messiah is going to start to decapitate people. Not very pleasant, is it? And yet, that's what the word of God tells you. But 21 again, and the Lord, triune God. Father, Son, Spirit, not three parts, three persons. Watch out for heretics who teach that God is three parts. You can't chop the Lord up. You can't break him into three parts like the Catholics do every time they transubstantiate him. God is three persons, not three parts. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud to lead them of the way. And by night in a pillar of fire 
to give them light, to go by day and night. There are no maps, no GPS, no satellites. They're going out by faith. This is real faith. Most won't make it into the promised land. I think from memory it says those that were under the age of 20 or thereabouts would die in the wilderness. Only Joshua and a few others would lead the next generation into the promised land. So the promised land is a type of paradise. The promised land is a type of the millennial reign. Going back to, if you love me, keep my commandments. Faith without works is dead. And if you are saved, works will normally follow. Not always, but normally. And that faith has to be put into action. He took not away the pillar of the cloud by day. Well, of course not. Take it away, they can't see where they're going. And they end up walking into a ditch. Nor the pillar of fire by night. From before the people. So this is supernatural through and through. Supernatural when it came to delivering the people of Israel from the clutch, from the grip of Pharaoh. If you go back to World War II, the Allies just uh, just mobilized and marched vicariously and victoriously, I should say, just marched victoriously through Europe. And after several months, they pushed, they pushed the Germans right back into Germany, liberated death camps, liberated countries. And people were dancing in the streets in Italy and France and elsewhere. And people were saying, had it not been for the Allies, we would never have escaped. The Germans would have remained forever. The goal of Hitler had been to rule for 1,000 years. And he struggled to do 13. And the Allies pushed with the Russians, of course, the Germans back to Germany and just annihilated them. Think of Japan, 45, two bombs are dropped on Japan. Tens of thousands were killed women had pre, uh, premature births kids were born with radiation uh, problems uh, deformities a lot of people had uh, premature births trees were consumed the water was poisoned for 20 years and those two planes that flew over japan just annihilated nagasaki and hiroshima just flattened japan and the emperor should have been put on trial after the war, but he walked it. But the point is this. Had America not flattened Japan, they would have carried on fighting for maybe 10, 15 years. Yep. Had the Allies not pushed the Germans back into Germany, they would have fought for another 10, maybe 15 years. The Germans had real resolve. Yeah. I mean, those guys know how to fight. And it took three superpowers, four years, to tie that nation down. And the same would be true of the people of Israel. Had the Lord not saved, not intervened to rapture, can we use that term, two million people, it wouldn't have been possible. No way. The term house of bondage is used for a purpose. Thumbs and screws, nailed, chained to the walls. If you think of what took place in Chile during the leadership of Pinochet, the Dina, a very brutal uh, secret police, had a favourite tactic of theirs. And what those good old boys would do, all Catholic incidentally, would bury their enemies into walls. And old Pinochet, a good Roman Catholic, had a requiem mass, was never excommunicated, said to the diener, put anybody who questions my authority into a wall, like alive, and then brick him up. Brick him up. You thought Castro was pretty cool, didn't you? You thought Hitler was pretty cool. You thought Stalin was pretty cool, didn't you? That old boy... Died 92, 93 yeah. in Chile, yeah, buried in the walls. And again, going back to the innate depravity of mankind and eventually 
Chile and elsewhere returned to democracy. But the point is this, that had the Lord not stepped in, saved the children of Israel and saved other people, they wouldn't have been able to break out. And had the Lord not saved us, we too couldn't have broken out, wouldn't have been able to break from the clutches of the devil and that boat would have remained lost. And there would have been no purchase, no buyback. And the two boys that found the boys' boat would have kept it forever. A picture of Satan controlling the world. Cross-reference back to Pharaoh, Old Testament. Herod, New Testament. And of course the devil is behind such people. But praise the Lord, our salvation is supernatural. Totally dependent on the Son of God. The all-powerful God-man. And of course regeneration comes exclusively through the working of the Holy Spirit.